God powered up in our lives and our hearts, and we are hopefully focused upon his word this morning. I know that the week's work that you just finished was challenging because you're talking 13 chapters of, of titles for your, your chapter. I have been very happy with the way the curriculum was broken down so that last week we were able to focus just intently on the author and the recipient and trying to set that historical setting a little bit. Um, and now this week, the primary job is to get those chapter themes titled so that we can begin to see the flow of thought. And that is an important thing for you to always kind of keep in mind. When you're making chapter titles, it's not just for the sake of coming up with a title. You are truly looking to be observant to see how it flows. Where does the author start and how does he progress and where does he land when he gets there? And, and really, these titles, if, if they're done accurately and if they are done by using those boundaries that precept gives to you through the tools of objective observation, if they're done well, you really, when you're done, you, you finally weed through and out of all of the details and to the surface comes this very systematic, very concise flow of thought that you can say, I get it, I see what he's doing here, I see what he's impressing upon these readers, I see, you know, the ultimate goal. Um, now, to get there, to be able to do that, there are some very basic steps. Last week, we did a couple of them. One was to observe the author and the recipient, and I, and I don't want to go through all that, but I would like to review the author just a little bit so that we make sure, again, we're going to review this over and over several times so that we really learn this and remember this about the book of Hebrews. Um, we do know there's a bit of a controversy, correct, about our author that, that you know, who is the author? So what is... Our, our um, final bottom line answer to that question. Who's the author? God. James, that's even better than the one I was going to say. <laughs> okay, besides, and James is absolutely right. God is the author. And, and you know what? Quite honestly, James, that's, that is so good. Be You're right. You're absolutely God. He did after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets. You know I have just made a decision. That is going to be our author's title name because everybody hates an unknown, don't we? Have we not been struggling with that? And nobody wants to say, well, we don't know. Well, we should be able to know. You know, there's something in us that just says we have to know. I love that. Uh, James, you are so good. Who is our author? I love that. And actually, you know, we could just skip the author part every every study and just put God up there. <laughs> However, now God did write to us and who did he write to us through? So since we do not have an actual name for the author, let's talk about what we did learn last week when we observed um, author indicators through, through the whole book. What did you learn about this author as far as who he is since we don't know his name? probably Jewish. And what makes us say that? Yes, absolutely. He speaks so intelligently and so, so 
uh, confidently with, with a great measure of, in, of knowledge. It seems to be very personal knowledge. And he can quote, 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 quote. And we haven't got there yet, but wait till we start digging into all these Old Testament quotes that he pulls right and left. So he's able to, as he goes systematically from subject to subject through 13 chapters, this brief letter that he's written to us, ha, ha, ha. Um, and he is able to, with each subject, just very skillfully pull out exactly the right example that these, the audience would understand. So then who is the audience? Those primarily, this focus is upon those of Jewish descent. So the question might be, though, now would be, well, then what does it have to do with us? H have you been able to see, because Kay asked a few of those questions at the close of our work last week, you know, do what, how does this relate to us then if it's written to a Jewish audience? Okay, they are Christians. First and foremost, they are Christians. That's a good, good point, Jamie. Right. And since we've been grafted in, then it does pertain to us in the fact that what must we then know? What are some truths about what they were Exactly. Actually, we can go back to what James pointed out. What was the very first verse? First, he spoke through who? The prophets. And now in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. So for those of us who are New Testament and not Jewish, he's speaking to us through his son. But first, he spoke through the prophets. And so is there a relationship to that? So as we go through then and do all of the work that we're going to be doing through all these Old Testament uh, cross-references, how important is it for us to, to embrace those, to understand those, to see the application of those to us today? Yes. Yes. And you know, I didn't Google that this week, and I, I do remember, I, uh, next week we're going to actually dive into chapter one and start doing observations on a chapter study, okay? So when we do, I would encourage some of you, if you've got time after you do your homework, you might want to Google that just for curiosity's sake to say, you know what, why is this uh, subject so important at the time, why was it that he brought that subject up about angels in chapter 1, right? And does it still pertain to us today? So you might just Google angel worship and see what shows up on your computer. <laughs> you just might be very surprised. <laughs> There you go. Therefore, we need to see what he said in the Old Testament was foreshadowing of the reality to come. And he's showing that all of these things are foreshadowing of Christ. And, that, that's, and Jesus is the fulfillment of them because, after all, in the beginning, this was God's promise to them that there was going to be a coming Christ, right? And so now the Christ has come. And so now we need to be able to see how do we know that this is the fulfilled Christ, that he has actually come. So there is a, a need for us to have a knowledge of what was promised and then to see the reality of what and who he is in, in his coming. Very good. There's tons of warnings and, and exhortations and 
uh, commands even somewhat, like you must do this, you know, pay much better attention. It made me think of my mother. <laughs> you know, not that my mother was ever very stern. She was always pretty loving. Mm-hmm. Never really into the Old Testament. And I kept questioning that, you know, if God can change his mind and suddenly say, it's not this, but it's this. Right. You know, how can you trust him? Because maybe he's going to change his yes. mind. Yes, yes. Yeah, so so that that's a really good point, Carrie, because what, what you're saying is, to a non-Christian, it could look like, well, they used to do this, and it was... God Yahweh. Now God Yahweh does this, and it's totally different. Why did God change? And did he change is the question. And did he? No. No, the reality is no. As a matter of fact, we learned something in the book of Acts, in our study in the book of Acts about that. Do you remember what the the legal de- declaration concerning that was by Gallio? Remember when the Jews brought it before, p- brought Paul before the, Cor- the Corinthian Bema seat and said, they're worshiping in this way, and they, and they wanted him to be condemned, basically, right? They wanted to put him to death. And Gallio, his conclusion was what about Christianity at that time? How, it wasn't a new thing. He, he actually said to them what? Do you remember? You, go ahead. Okay, that is... That's exactly, okay, that is a really good point there, that if it's of man, it won't make it. But if it's of God, you cannot do anything. Basically, you'll get, find yourself in the way of God. But, but Gallio's point was that um, he's, his, his judicial response to them was, what, is, what do what we, the Roman system, have to do with you and your Jewish problems? Go back and work it out for yourself basically. And in doing that, he, he legitimized Christianity, connecting it back to its root, which is Judaism. So for us as Christians today, this was an essential move, and we see the ramifications of that in history as it continued to play out further and further. It, you know, eventually, it, it, what it led to then was that Christianity was allowed to be and to prosper in, in the, the days of the Roman Empire. Otherwise, it would have been put down because the Romans did not allow new new faith systems to come on the scene. They wouldn't sanction new ones. They would only sanction old ones, which I thought was an interesting insight. I had never knew before about them. Okay. All right. So we know that he's probably Jewish, so I think we've talked about that pretty well. What else do we know about him? Okay. He is not an apostle. He's not an apostle. Now, how do we know that? Okay, well, for one thing, he do, you're right. He, do, he does not claim it. That's right. In chapter 2, verse 3, I'll just put this up here, 2, 3, he says about the gospel message that came to him that he heard it from those who had heard it from the Lord. So in other words, he, was not, he did not hear it firsthand from Jesus. The apostles all did, Right. Um, and the one other person that um, often is brought up as a possibility is Paul. But what do we know about Paul and all the things that he has claimed concerning 
how he received the word. Yes, he is an apostle, although abnormally born because he didn't walk with Jesus during the days of his ministry. However, how did he come into faith? <laughs> By a vision on the road to, to Damascus, God appear, Christ appeared before him. And then following that, we see other references that make mention to what, Celeste? Do you remember? That's right. And he actually talks about, um, I did not go back up to the apostles at Jerusalem. I did not go to James. I mean, he names even some of them. He says, but I was taught directly from the Lord, right? So by those two things, number uh, alone, we've got a pretty good foundation of saying it is not, it is not Paul either. Um, but the other thing about Paul, when he would write his letters, how does he always open them? I, Paul, <laughs> an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? And so he really makes a, a loud claim to that. Yes, that's right. That's right. So there's a good point. So at this point, we know this author, that although it is God himself, through uh, uh, God, through this man, he is probably Jewish. He is probably not an apostle. And what else do we know about him? Anything that you want to share? He knows Timothy. Okay, so let's put that there. He knew Timothy. And that's in chapter 13. I can't remember the verse, but it's there, okay? 22, thank you. All right. Before 70 AD. Okay, let's do that. Before 70 AD. And that's because we know the temple was still standing because of so many of the references that go on in this particular uh, book, right? Um, You know, that's a good point, Carol. In other words, who was he rubbing shoulders with? Who was he hanging out with? Who was, who was mentoring him and giving sanction and, and uh, credence to his, his work? One of the things to me that was, was, I felt was a really strong point that it's subliminal, but it's there, and that is he had the authority to write to these believers. They apparently knew who he was. He didn't even, he didn't even identify himself. They knew who he was. And he had that authority to correct them and rebuke them and, and train and instruct them in proper understanding of this change, this transition from the old to the new. That is someone who is very well vetted, number one, but also very well trained himself. He has had, he's had a good deal of, of uh, personal training that he understands how this transition was made so that it benefits you and I today. For those of us who, you know, we're actually working it backwards, aren't we? Because we don't really understand the Jewish system, but we get, we get Christianity on our side. So we have to work backwards and learn the Jewish roots better, don't we? Okay. All right. And I would say just a, a given, I'm going to put it up here, that he's a believer. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he talked about them believing in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says that he had heard it and he had believed the gospel. And in chapter 4, it's all about entering into the rest of God. And so in that particular chapter especially, but lots of them cover this, uh, this point. Yes. as other groups like those that would go into the church. That's true. That's So he's obviously very well educated. Okay, that's a good point. Higher he's maybe of a higher um, level as far as uh, education is concerned and his his skills in being able to write it and explain it and quote it. So he's had some Levitical training of some kind possibly then he came out of the Levitical priesthood even. Who knows? Could be. All right, very well. All right, so that's a good review on that. Now, this week, one of the things that you were asked to do was to begin to mark your keywords. Now, some of you had already done that ahead of time, so you had a jump start on this. But let's just make a list of our, uh, our book keywords so that we just kind of know what those are together. As you went through now, one, here's the trick about doing overview. It is really easy to dive into a specific chapter and find keywords. But what you're looking for are not the keywords that are in a specific chapter, but a keyword that you see that seems to keep getting brought up it doesn't have to necessarily be in every single chapter, but it needs to be consistently through the whole the book on the whole so that you can see that it's a, a theme that is started with and ends with, right? So it, so it flows so that you can see because that's what you're looking for. What you're actually trying to do at this point is not see what is each chapter about, but what is the book on the whole about. And so you need to be able to, to by identifying uh, subjects that come up and get repeated throughout the whole book, then you can begin to say, ah, that's what the author's major point is here. This is the primary subject that he's focusing in on. Once you identify those key words, then you can start to make lists that are more to more thoroughly develop your insight about it. And then from that, you'll begin to be able to come up with your book theme, your purpose for writing. All right. So what did you see as far as key in this particular book? If you, had to, if you had to pick one key word that you know is absolutely the most important one f from your perspective right now, what was your most important key word? Jesus. Jesus. Absolutely. All right. So I agree. Jesus. All right. And in doing that then... Um, as you're moving through this book, you're going to begin to start a list on Jesus. Now, here's how I would recommend you do it, and this is what I like to do. I open up a Word document on my computer, and I say, Chapter 1, Jesus, and I start listing my bullet points that I would want to make for my list. And then each time we move from one chapter to the next, I go back and open that same document and add to it. That way, by the time you're done with this whole study in the next year, you're going to have 13 chapters of insightful information about Jesus, what has been taught to you about your Savior. Mm -hmm. 
I put, I don't, I don't copy the whole verse. I try to do just like you do in list making. You know, what are the, I try to weed through all the um, adjectives and the reasons why or the, even the purpose statements sometimes and just try to say, this is who he is, okay? He's the son of God. He is, um, he is your salvation. He is, what I mean, all, whatever it is that's being talked about in that particular verse, you try to pull out the most specific foundational points because otherwise you're right all you're doing is copying down verse after verse you might as well just say the whole book of Hebrews there it is because in this because <laughs> for sure in this book Jesus it he's everywhere right from beginning to end and for that reason you know he's the, the primary focus of this particular author's message but now what you have to do at this point then the next step is saying okay it's all about Jesus and now what is the emphasis that this author places about Jesus that he is teaching is there any one or two or three points that he seems to be really addressing right so you're going to try to look for that again in the end what's going to happen it's really neat it's a domino thing once you see what your major subject is then you start to try to look for what is the message about that major subject you're going to start to see that once you see what the message is about the major subject then you see how that relates to who the audience is, and it begins to bring to the surface what their problems might be or what their struggles were or why even this author started had, had to write to them or wanted to write to them. So it begins to help you unpackage, basically, this context for all the information that's going to be in there that we're going to later go back and look at. It's really, it really works very well. So, Jesus. Besides Jesus, what were other words then that you began to see covenant that's right that word covenant comes up doesn't it now is that running all the way through the book from chapter one all the way to the end no so what you know then by that is what it's a I'm sorry it okay it's a major topic but it's only one topic about our major subject so, like, it is a subtopic, right? It isn't the major topic. It's a subtopic. Perfect. Excellent. All right? Better than and superior to. Now, we're going to cover that one a little bit more today. I'm going to put this. Oh, I'll do it over here. I'll do a different color so we can. We're not going to do a whole lot of it on this one today. But um, we'll do a little bit. But next week you're going to actually look at this more in more detail and you're going to use it as a catalyst or as a tool to find contrasts and comparisons and it's going to be the beginning point i'm just going to tell you that right up front for next week in your homework when she says look at the word better than and then later she's going to say now look for comparisons don't only look for comparisons in better than statements better thans are w one of the major ways of finding your contrast but there are some other points along the way in this book that are still contrasts they compare something with something else and there's no better than statement in it okay just so that you know that okay sometimes Kay will have us do a homework assignment like she did this week she said look at the at the keyword better than right um and then now next week she's going to bring it up again and you're sometimes people are like well we already did that. Why are we doing it again, right? You have to understand that each time she does it, she's coming at it from a different, a different angle so that you see uh, and develop it a little bit more. 
you see it more thoroughly, okay? All right, so better than is also a key word, right? Or a key phrase. Okay. What else? Let us. Now, Kay led us to that one, didn't she? That is one thing I've got to say that I really love about um, the, having the curriculum of inductive, uh, the pup book with you. I mean, if you have your precept upon precept workbook, as you're moving along, she'll say, do this, do this, do this. And then by day two or day three, she'll say, if you missed this word, go back and mark it and now make a list. And that way she makes sure that at least you get the major things that she wants you uh, to have in your, in, your, um, in your bag, basically, so that you have um, a foundation already built of insights that otherwise you may have missed. Let us is not something that I would have probably marked, except that she said to mark it, right? It would not be a natural word for you to say, oh, that's a key word. No, let us is a, like a command, all right, so that, that was a good one. So she did give that to us, yes. The Word of God. What's that? High Priest. Yes, he does. In what part of the book? The whole thing or in more in the middle? right? It's almost like he hits a certain point, he picks up that subject, and he hammers it down really good, and then he switches to another subject. And all of a sudden, high priest doesn't get mentioned again. So what does that tell us about this, the word high priest? It's a subtopic to our major subject, who is Jesus. Right, because it's right in the beginning, isn't it? It's in the beginning, and then it's kind of subtle throughout the whole thing. It's, it's more of a, I guess it's more of a contrast, though. It's contrasting God and creator and creation. Okay, good. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that. Don't forget that. When you start doing your homework next week, because there's going to be some things that are going to come up that that, that will actually surface a little bit more uh, uh, strongly, I think, in that week's homework anyway. Okay, good. Oh, yes, okay. Very good. Okay, and Carol, those are not considered key words, but they're references of time. They are part of your uh, observations when you start focusing in on the details starting next week. Kay will say to you, now go in and do your observations in Chapter 1, and she will say, mark every reference to time. So once you start doing your, your chapter um, studies, your, your chapter observations, you will start to mark time in each chapter. Now, the only exception um, that I would say about that is sometimes she will back that up into the overview time, especially if it's like a, uh, like the, um, the Gospels, for instance, where there's a, a segments of time make divisions. They give you, he did this first, then he did this, and then he did this, right? And so those time indicators when you're trying to do historical records are really, really important. So good that you caught that. And if you started marking those already, then you're ahead of the game. But that, so just know that. When you go into your how-to study book, 
you will see when you get into focusing in on the details, it'll say, it'll should tell you to mark references of time. It actually tells you to do that also in overview time, but they don't consider them a keyword. They're just a reference of time. Right. Now, that's the descriptiveness about what subject? That high priest, right? He's a high priest forever. Or a son forever. That's true. That's true, too. Yes. Okay. So, I, you know, if, we want, if you want to put forever on here, it does not hurt. There's never a wrong keyword marked, just so you guys know that. It's never wrong. Just so you, uh, if you, as long as you mark it and, and it shows or reveals something to you and it brings something to the surface that maybe you would have missed otherwise, then it's a, then it's a useful keyword. And that's the whole point to this system. You're just, you, every piece of it is just a tool to help you better look at the word and understand it. Did you, th did you by in any way connect rest with any other word as a synonym? Um, a synonym. Well, what does it mean to enter into the rest of God? Becoming a believer. Salvation can actually be a synonym then to the rest of God. So if you marked the word rest and you wanted it to be a key word for the book rather than for just one chapter, chapter 4 covers the rest of God. That it becomes a major subject in that particular chapter. But you don't see rest in the rest of the book. Okay, so just so what you did is you... See, and this is really cool. I love, love, love this, this part of the process. Um, Sometimes you're going through and you think, should I mark a word or shouldn't I, right? And, the and what's good to do is if you think it's key, like what you just did with the word rest, and you thought, well, I think it's key, mark it and then observe. What happens is it becomes obvious because now what you can do is, you, okay, you marked it purple. It's a purple circle for rest. Now, flip through each page. How many purple circles do you see? And you can just visually, without reading anything, just flip your pages and look for purple circles. Golly, there, there's a bunch of them in four. Wow, look at all those purple circles. And then you hit five, and there aren't any. You hit six, and there aren't any. You hit seven, and there aren't any. So what does that tell you? It's not, it's a key, it's a key. It means it's a key, it was a key subject in one chapter. And this is what's cool about it is um, because the inductive process is it's objective. It helps us to avoid that pitfall of saying, oh, I just, I saw this and I just, you know, people who are prayer warriors, they pick up on prayer and intercessory anything and they are like all over it like glue, right? They just can't stand and they, and for however they look at everything else in the rest of that book, it's all about that because that is the most important thing to them. People who are givers, they'll pick up on anything that has to do with tithing and, and being generous and helping other people. They just can't stand it, and that's all they see in the whole book. Well, the, this process, by marking, uh, marking your key words, helps you be objective. Because, yes, that might be key in one segment, but by having marked it, you can back up and just visually say, am I right or wrong? Correct? Good. You did see sin a lot. Now, that is very interesting because, uh, 
Uh, Carol, we should talk after class. <laughs> but, but quite honestly, you're not the only one that saw that. La in last week's discussion, someone brought that up. I had not really paid that close attention to it. I, on the other hand, am practically perfect like Mary Poppins. <laughs> we talked about that earlier. <laughs> and since I'm practically perfect, sin was not even on my radar. <laughs> But um, sin actually is a key word in the book, and it does tend to come up in a lot of the chapters. So it could be a, a, a key element in as far as a subject matter pertaining to the major subject, who is Jesus. So Jesus, in relationship to that subject to sin, seems to come up a lot. And so what about sin is being magnified? What about Jesus is being magnified by the by the subject of sin coming up. So we, we're going to add that up here, sin. Right, and there's lots of synonyms. Disobedience, right? Unbelief. Now, this is really, really cool, and I can't wait for us to get into it. I hope it, there's a point where it really comes up uh, in a focused way in one of our, our um, studies. But believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ becomes synonymous in this book. Very cool. Uh, the word therefore. Now, therefore, another key, another key word. Is therefore a key word? Is it a subject? What does the word therefore do for us? What is it? It's a conclusion statement, right? It says, therefore, you know, what is the word therefore, <laughs> right? So, therefore is a conclusion statement, and they should be marked. I, when I am doing my overview week, I usually start right away. I start, I start right away at the beginning marking the word therefore, and also, but, because these are these are phrases that are going to become important to you at some point. So just to knowing I'm they're going to be coming up, they're not considered a key word, but but because they're important in your understanding and they also help to bring out a certain point. A but will show a contrast, right? So we talked about the word better better than which or or more is another one. When those words are given to us, we're going to see that there's going to be a comparison. This is better than that. But the word but will also give contrast. So you're going to note those. So at this point, you can start. If you didn't do it this week, you will want to start next week marking the words therefore. And although she doesn't tell you to do it, the word but. Anytime you see but. Now, what I do is I just use yellow, something that's kind of soft and not too intrusive, and I mark all my therefores and all my buts with just a little yellow highlighter sort of thing. And that's good. So there's your synonyms. So you, the word sin would be one, and then the other word would be belief. Okay. Now, here's the deal. There were probably a lot of words that you could have marked, and we're starting to get into some of the lesser of them, so we're going to stop where we're at. Let's just cover it. We've got Jesus as the major subject, and as sub-subjects, we see at various points, each of these other subjects will come up 
and then they get dropped. Some of them seem to be brought up and then dropped and then brought up and then dropped. So in other words, it's a single point that seems to be made about Jesus or something that he in some way relates to that word. So covenant is going to be brought up. Um, the word of God is going to be brought up. The high priest. The subject of that he is forever, which is can be a time reference, but in this case, it also might be more of a declarative subject itself forever, uh, such as the word eternal, right? Sin and belief. Um, although Jesus becomes the most dominant one, when we are marking um, at the beginning of an overview, what is, who should we always mark? God and the Holy Spirit. So even though we don't really talk, or we're not going to spend as much time talking about them because the focus isn't upon them, is God a major subject in this particular book? Absolutely. So you should also have put, put basically you want the whole Trinity in there. You want God and the Holy Spirit also marked. Okay, very good. So those are your key words. Yes, Carol. It can on occasion. It's not seen as heavily in this book, but it, it could. So, yes, it, it, there is no rule that says you can't mark something and then see what happens. And that's kind of the, the cool thing about it. It's just like we said a minute ago. When you mark it and you say, oh, I think it's important, let's mark it, and then you step back and, and without reading, just looking for your color markers, start flipping the pages and see how often it comes up for you. That will be the, that's the um, litmus test that shows you, is it really a major subject or not when it goes through? If would be, I think would fall along the idea of buts and therefores. So you could just mark them with a little, I would use my yellow marker and just color over them so that I spot them, the ifs in there, because sometimes they do make a significant statement. Okay. The brethren, we've already marked, though, and who are the brethren in this particular book? The recipients of this book, right? So you've marked your author and you've marked your recipient last week, and the brethren become the, the, the recipients, okay? But what does it reveal to us about the recipients when you see him use the word brethren? that they are believers. Of course, there's plenty of other verses that will explain that and also make clear, more declarative statements, but the title, Brethren, itself shows this fellowship that there is between the author and these recipients. Okay, very good. All right, so now let's move on to... Um, we see that, the, that marking keywords reveals to us major subjects, right? And what you're going to do next, then, is begin to start making some lists. Now, last week, we talked about the author's motivation for writing. It wasn't the author's purpose. In other words, it's not the major purpose of the book. But what we did look for was what motivated this author to write this particular book. Now, what did we see about his, his motive last week? Do you remember what chapter and verse we found? that said why he wrote and, and how he wanted them to handle the message that he sent to them? Oh, hold on, sorry. That was me. <laughs> Hello. That's my husband. 
Hail to the chief, he's the ruler of the world. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 1322, okay. Okay, he says to bear with this word of exhortation. Now go on and finish that. Because I think it's funny. <laughs> For I've been, written to you briefly. <laughs> okay, okay, 13 chapters is not brief. <laughs> A short letter, that's right. <laughs> no, okay. So now, since we know this is a word of exhortation, one of the things Kay had us do this week was to look at the let us statements. Uh, and why? Why does she say let us connects to the word exhortation? Does, did anybody do a word study on exhortation by chance? I know it wasn't in the homework. Did anybody look it up? Okay, I'm just going to give it to you because I thought I think it's, it helps to broaden your understanding a little bit more of why we went into the let us statements here. Because when you're doing your context setting, you're wanting to know your author and your recipient, and, you're, and you do want to know the motivation. What seems to be motivating this author to write? And then once you begin to build some of these lists and such, then you're going to bring to the to the surface what his major subject is and why he wrote, right? His purpose for writing. But right now you're wanting to know what is his motivation for writing. They sound similar, but they're not, they're not the same thing. One's more of an emotional thing um, that, that has to do with his passion and, and his, uh, his and either an urgency or a fear or, a, or, a, or maybe a, a condemnation or, or, an, or even the other, which would be to um, uh, basically give them pats on the back. I mean, it can be almost anything that would motivate him to write. And in this case, he says, bear with this word of exhortation, for I write to you briefly. So he tells you why he's writing. It says a word of exhortation. So I looked it up. The num uh, it's number 3874, Paraclesis, P-A-R-A-K-L-E-S-I-S. S-I-S. -S. And it's number 3874. By definition, it, it means consolation, exhortation, comfort, entreaty, draw, uh, even this one, I thought this was interesting, calling near, admonition, encouragement, which is something that to me that would be the most obvious understanding of it, to exhort would be to encourage. Persuasive disclosure, or oh, sorry, sorry I, I read it wrong. Persuasive discourse. I thought that was really kind of cute because this was definitely a discourse. <laughs> There's a lot of writing in this particular one, right? And he's trying to be persuasive about it. So through the discourse, he is persuading you to Mm-hmm. Okay, instructive, conciliatory, earnest request, or an appeal. Okay, so you can do your own word study on that and get all more in-depth on that if you'd like to. But I loved the idea of just developing that a little bit because bear with this word of exhortation. If you don't understand it, it kind of entails all of this. He wants to 
push you forward. He wants to encourage you. He also, in some cases, wants to uh, admonish. Have we seen that in this book, that there are places where he actually is even, it almost looks like a rebuke, where he's saying, look, you guys should by now be doing this or that, and you're not. So you see a little bit of everything in this word of exhortation. So to exhort someone is not always just to give them a hug and smile. Sometimes it's to take your finger and, and kind of shake it a little bit at their, in their face and say, look, you guys, you need, to, you need to get on board here, right? You need to get busy. You need to discipline yourself. You need to not forget the discipline of the Lord. You need to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need to not. Whatever. So he goes on and gives a, a long list of those. So let's go and look at some of those admonitions. Let us. We're not going to do them all. I'm going to get us started. This is something you did in your homework. So you should have your list somewhere. It's on day two, page six of your homework. And you can, if you, and, and I don't care where you pull it from. Just give me, however, the street address. I want to know what chapter and verse you're pulling your statement out of. Okay. What, if, what do you see in 4.1? And what, and, and this is in four, chapter four. What is the major theme in chapter four about? What is our major subject, Celeste, in chapter four? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Her favorite, ver her favorite word. She likes to rest. I do know that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, so when he says to be careful not, about not entering into it, he's talking about rest, right? About the rest of God. Not falling short of entering into that rest. Right. Not, to not fall short of entering rest. Now, I can't wait for us. And that was for what? One. For one. I cannot wait for us to actually develop your understanding of entering into the rest of God. For me, the, the first time I studied uh, Hebrews, it was my biggest aha out of the whole book of Hebrews that I had not comprehended before I studied this. And afterwards, because I've heard about the rest of God forever and ever. Oh, they entered the rest. They didn't enter the rest. And I didn't exactly know what all that means. But when we get in and doing, start doing our cross-referencing and, and get all of the pictures concerning it, I, I hope it'll be a real blessing to each of you. All right, so let us fear lest any one of you come short of entering the rest. In other words, what is he actually saying to them? Be careful, self-examine. You need to look at your life. So in other words, he's actually even implying then that there's something they can do to examine themselves to know whether or not they have entered into that rest. There should be some evidential things about their life that help them to say, yes, I have entered the rest. How many of you, you know and how many of all of us have ever gone through this ourselves where we doubted our salvation? Do I really have salvation? Do I really know the Lord? Have I really come to know him and we start to doubt it, right? Are there some concrete things in God's word where he says, this is how you can know that you have, have, have eternal life? And does he not give us the evidences of those? These let us statements, as we go through this, I kind of like, uh, Jamie, that we started here, that you're to be careful not, to fall, ha, not having fallen short of having entered into the rest. He wants you to examine your life to see whether or not you have.
All right, so let's talk about some things that you need to do in order to do that. Let us do what? Okay. Draw near uh, uh, to the, it's to the throne, right? To the throne of grace with confidence. I kind of put that in a weird order. I'm sorry. I think I got it out of order. But that you're back in chapter 4 again in 4.16, okay? Okay, be diligent to enter that. Right, be diligent to enter it. Okay, and, we're, and we, we don't want to probably get quite that detailed. Hold on, so let me pull it over here. Let me go over to four. Yeah, okay, B, uh, 4.11. Let me look and see what it says. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that. Now, there's the so that. Uh, Sarah, I think it was you that kind of gave me a puzzled look, and I said sometimes when you're making these lists, what you want to do is drop a lot of the so that's and and the adjectives, because what can happen then is you're basically writing the whole list. And you're go we are going to develop it more when we actually get into the chapter study. And we're going to look at the so that points, right? But up front, when you're just making your list about let us, you just want to get the bullet point. Let us do what? Let us be diligent to enter that rest, okay? So we'll start there. And we know there's, a, there's more to it, and we'll get there, okay? What else do you have for, for um, okay? Hold fast our confession. Boy, we just hung on chapter four. Is that all we're going to do today? <laughs> I guess, Celeste, you picked the best book in the whole one. They all like chapter four. Uh, f uh, four one. Yes, ma'am. Okay, let us. We're looking at all the let us statements, and here's very, something that's very interesting too. And I don't know if you did it or not, but I did. There's a list that says let us that's actually stated, and then there's a whole lot of let uses that are not that are not stated, but it's implied. Right? So he's encouraging them to do stuff. So you could actually slip in there, let us. So what I did when I did my, my observation worksheet is anywhere I saw um, a, a statement that I felt was a let us statement, but it didn't say let us, I just penciled it in above the, the verse. Just so that I would see all the let us's because there's so many. You know, um, let me see here. One of them is in chapter 3, verse 1. He says to do what? There. That really is a let us. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then look at in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any uh, one uh, of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but... Thou another let us. Let us do what? 
encourage one another day after day. So you can see that there are other statements in there that, don't, that, that are not actually stated, let us, but, they're, but it's implied, right? All right. Okay, some of us, some of them are let. Okay, so let us encourage one another. And what is that verse? What chapter and verse? Is that 3? 3.13. Okay, good. Any other let us? Okay. Oh, I love that one. Leave the elementary teachings. And that's in uh, 6.1. Okay. And did you, is there a but? Okay. I'm just going to put, I put the word but and I circled it because it's, I'm saying there's an implication there to, to leave the elementary, but now also to do this. Um, but it, it is not stated. So maybe I shouldn't even do that and mess you guys up. So. I do that to myself sometimes. Okay, let us leave the elementary teachings. Let us press on to maturity. Um, that's also 6-1, I think, yes? Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do what there? Okay, let us show diligence until the end. And then you have to develop it more to find out what they're talking about there, don't you? What the diligence pertaining what? What do you, does it indicate to you at all on the surface without having to dig too deeply? Diligence in doing what? Okay, to realize the full assurance of hope. Okay. Yeah, it's an implied let us, exactly. There's a lot of those in here. All right, let's do a few more. Okay. That's kind of a do not rather than a let us. That's like the opposite. Yeah. Now, there's the distinction between them. Some of them are warnings about what not to do, and the others are exhortations to do. So we're looking at the exhortations right here. So we're looking at the positives, let us. It, gets confu- it can be confusing. If, if you should m- mix them in your list, it's okay. I mean, there's no law. That nobody's, there's no Nazi that's going to come and arrest you and, you know, do you in. It's, it's okay. <laughs> we don't have precept Nazis, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it sometimes does because look at the definition that we just went through on instructions and exhortations. They're almost the same. Uh, it becomes a, it can also even become an admonishment, w- which goes back to what Celeste just did and said, well, do nots. 
can, can be, well, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. If you're really careful to make a list and rather than calling it exhortation, you could make a list that says, uh, what are they being encouraged to do and what are they being told not to do? And you could make the do's and the don'ts, right? If you wanted to, you could do it that way. Okay, so did you have a point you wanted to put up here? What? Uh, okay. Oh, boy, is it. Oh, it is. I actually quit on my list making because I ran out of space. I didn't do 13. But 13's list is like this long, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's put a few more up here, and then we'll be done with this part. We'll move into looking at... Um, the next step, which is those chapter themes. On the whole, there's a couple in here I really want you to look at. Go to chapter 12. So to kind of, as we get to the conclusion of some of this, I thought there were a couple in here that were really good. There's a bunch of them, actually. Okay, one, do what? Okay, lay aside all encumbrances. Run with endurance. Okay, and that's in 12. Is that one and two? We could just almost put the whole thing there. Okay. 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 All right, what else? Yeah, we're using the New American Standard Translation when we make our lists, okay? Okay, let us, uh, oh, I love that one. Now, let us show gratitude about what? Yeah, so therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, then let us show gratitude. Now, how are we going to show gratitude according to this verse? So we're going to give him acceptable service. Now, think about this from the perspective of who these people are. Now, these are those who've come out of the Jewish system of worship, right? So what was their service that was acceptable previous to this? The law, executing the law itself at the temple, correct? Going to the temple, giving sacrifices, giving um, votive uh, offerings as well. Um, and so they had this intercessor through the priest at the priestly system. And so now what he's saying here, but we have received a kingdom. Now let's show God gratitude concerning that. And let's give him what's an acceptable service. So, although he doesn't say it, does it almost seem that there's an implication that there's, there's not an acceptable way to show God thankfulness? It sure does, especially to this particular audience, right? It's going to be very pertinent for them specific, because what might be the temptation for this particular group of people? To keep going back to the temple, because it's what they've always done. It's the way they've always worshipped God. Here he's saying, no, there's an there is an acceptable way to worship him, and that is to offer him an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And so he, he goes on to say, then, what are some of those things? Go into chapter 13. What are some of those things? Okay, go outside the camp to worship, okay? 
Okay, 13, 13. 13, 15 says what? Okay, so in this case, it's not saying don't go just regimentally to the temple and do it, but continually be giving uh, through, through the words of your mouth, through the, the praises that you sing, you are to give uh, thanks to his name, right? And 16, here's a do not for you, Celeste. In, in uh, thirteen sixteen, go thirteen sixteen. What? Okay, so here's your another inference to that sacrifice. What is it pleasing and acceptable sacrifice? We can switch the do not though and make it a positive, can't we? So that it becomes a do, and that is do uh, do good and share. Right? That's a way to please God. Uh, verse 17, what's another way? <laughs> Obeying your leaders. Yeah, I forgot the most important part. Are you having a problem with this, Lise? <laughs> Obey your leaders and submit to them. Right? Um, Well, now, which now, honestly, which now, which leaders is this making reference to? Obviously, it's speaking to their spiritual leaders, right? <laughs> okay, I love that one too. Hold on, just a second. Okay, 10 what? 25. 10, 25. Okay, own assembly. You know, I really like the way that one says, do not forsake your own assembling together. Did you notice that? The way that that was phrased, your own assembling together? As if there's another group out there that sh they're competing with or, or needing to. Okay, now, I'm sorry. Now, Celeste, what was it that you said back in 1? No, 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 13. Oh, 13. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let love of brethren continue. Okay. All right, now we obviously did not do a, a complete list on all the let us possibilities. There are tons and tons more. But what, what would you say when you look at this, what might be a conclusion you would draw by looking at just the idea that he has given them a word of exhortations and the let us things that you see? That's funny, Carol. That's hysterical. There seems to be a lot of work in rest. <laughs> That's good. So obviously rest means something different than laying down and closing your eyes, right? Unless you're praying, then that would work. Go ahead, Jamie. Possibly, possibly discouraged, although... Do you see a lot? Well, maybe. It seems to imply that they're giving up on some things, that they're not enduring in it. They're not being diligent to continue well, in. They're still doing the old way. 
Or maybe he's fighting against them falling back into something they were doing before, right? Do we see chapters that seem to actually really more clearly even state that, that that's what the problem is? Yes. 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 Okay. All right. So what's really great about doing this exercise, your inductive study here, this particular step, is that what it does is it helps you to start process information and starting to kind of evaluate on the whole what do you see going on here between, what are the dynamics, what seems to be... He wants to exhort them, and we discussed exhorting doesn't just mean encourage. It can also mean to admonish them and to correct them. But it also means to train them and instruct them, right? So he's, he's training, instructing. He's, he's basically kicking them in the rear end on a few things. And in other things, he seems to be putting his arms around them and hugging them and helping them to see that there's something better because that phrase better than is throughout the whole book. So at this point, yes, go ahead, Carrie. Right. It sounds like when he does it that way, it does sound like he is um, joining them. Right? Yeah. Right, which takes us back to that 1025 about not forsaking the our assembling together, correct? I'm having trouble with this thing. It's not actually cooperating. Okay, all right. So at this point, we're going to let this stand. I want you on your own to go back. If you, I don't know how well you did your let us list at home, how thoroughly you did it. But I can tell you it is very insightful when you do these kinds of lists because once you're done, at the, at the moment that you're doing it, you're intent on one thing and then you're moving to the next and you're intent on it and then you're moving and then you write the next little thing and you put your reference and then you, but at the end of it, you're able to kind of step back and look at the list on the whole and you get a different feel for it. You kind of get the, the essence of what he keeps trying to bring up over and over and over, chapter by chapter, he seems to be exhorting them and, and urging them. And he does it in such a way, as, as you said, that it's like, let us. And so what this does is, is it, it makes it a moment of fellowshipping and of unity and of teamwork right? So that you're encouraged by one another. How important is it that we do that with one another even today? Do we, do you really feel that you get enough of that in, in your church experience right now? That there's enough uh, uh, camaraderie and, and togetherness and emotional support and, you know, attaboys, yay, good, good job. And when you need it, hey, knock it off. You know, you can't do that. You can't have that attitude. You can't say those things. You can't go and do those things. 
I mean, you need a little of both, right? You need both the kicking and you need the, the hugs. Balance. We need a balance. Um, we have one chapter then at one point that comes up, which is the subject of discipline, and, and we didn't bring that up. But um, having looked at this, would you say the subject of discipline becomes rather a dominant one? Another one that I see kind of surfaces by evaluating this is the idea of sanctification, the subject of sanctification. We are going, we are going to see, and this might be for next week, I'm just going to, I'm putting a little bug in your ear again for next week's homework. When you start doing your segment uh, divisions, I think there's going to be some segments that are going to actually be more declarative where the emphasis in one segment is all about justification, how you get to that place of relationship with God. And then there's going to be another segment that's going to say, now, now that you're in this place with God, although there's going to be some exhortations in all of it, but there's going to be a, another segment, I think, where it's more heavily, it's going to be saying, now this is how you need to respond this is your acceptable act of service to God because you have been justified. So we're going to look, I think there's going to be justification and sanctification in this book. And I, th I think you're going to see some, some clarity on that. But what I think is really neat is that on the whole, all these let us statements helps bring to the surface that there is a lot of, of work in our rest. Right, Carol? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, I see also in there that subject of holiness, how we are in sanctification, the work of sanctification. It's not just us doing stuff for no reason. There, the purpose behind the doing is this process of, of bringing glory to God and bringing us into a, a, a deeper place of holy living, right, so that we will glorify God. I love it. I can't wait till we get into some of these subjects more specific. Okay, now we've got another half an hour. Let's get. Let's see if we can get through all these chapters. Some of them we're going to spend longer than others, so I, I'll just tell you that up front we're going to whip through some of these. Right now, it is not our goal to discuss all the details about each chapter. We're going to do that as we make our progressive work through. Today, for, for the purpose of today, all we want to do is try to float to the surface what was the most major thing that you saw in each chapter and what did you title that chapter right we know our major subject is jesus correct so concerning jesus what did we see in chapter one about him he is what much better than the angels better than the angels all right, and uh, did you pick a verse for that? Okay, me too. Good job. All right, so we must be right because at least three of us agree on that. <laughs> All right, and, and the, by the way, I, I again want to clarify for those of you who are new at this, verses that you pick when you're, when you're deciding on a, uh, a, a key verse for each chapter is totally subjective. It, it should meet the requirements, however, of addressing in that verse the major 
uh, theme or the major subject that has come up in there. So if your major subject is about angels in chapter 1, then your verse that you pick as your key verse for that chapter should tell you something about angels in relationship to Jesus, right? So it shouldn't just be an arbitrary verse. It has to be something that actually declares in a clear way what about the angels concerning and in relationship to Jesus, what is it that you, that you found was significant? And in this thing, we saw he's better than the angels. Um, um, it, it, uh, it is, but it, do you think that the Son of God is the major subject in chapter 1? Okay, and he's supreme over what? In that chapter, he's supreme over the angels. Now, really cool about that, Carol, is the subject of his supremacy, does that continue even after chapter 1? That Jesus is supreme. It's, it's just one way of, of stating. You could also say Jesus is better. Either way, it's the same, it, it, can, it can be equated in the same way. So I'm going to put up here... Um, Oh, here it is, book thing. Here, I was looking for it. I knew I, had, I knew I had put it up here. I just didn't know where it was. Okay, so somehow it seems like already we have concluded that this book on the whole has something to do with the supremacy of Jesus or that Jesus is better than. Although there are not better than statements in every single chapter, the concept that he is better is portrayed in every single chapter, correct? So just keep that. I'm only putting that up there right now as just something to chew on in your mind. I put up there as your book theme, possibility of the supremacy of Jesus. Now, in chapter 1, he's supreme, but he's supreme, although it's mentioned that he's the son. It's not talking about him, his supremacy as the son, but it's in relationship to a major subject which is who? Angels, okay? All right, so we've got he's better than the angels or he is superior to the angels would also work. All right, what in chapter 2? Okay, in chapter 2, we see high priest is mentioned how many times? Once. Okay, is that your major theme, your major subject in two? Okay, exactly. Okay, so perfect. What is your key word in chapter two? It, besides Jesus, it's going to be who? The brethren that he has been made like, and he has been made like alike them by having been made flesh. Right? So it has to, everything in chapter 2 is, is about his relationship to man. Correct? So chapter 1, it was about his relationship to angels. Chapter 2, now it's about his relationship to man. And in both of those, it's showing how he is superior. And in chapter 2, he's superior, and he's, it doesn't say he's better than man, but what he does do is it puts him positionally over man as Identifying him as what? Author of salvation. Also there what? Faithful high priest. That, pardon? 
that he makes propitiation for sin. We're going to see a lot of this when we actually get in and start doing your work. How about the creator, that he's our creator? The fact that he created man makes him superior to man, correct? All right, so in here what we see then is our major key word in chapter 2 is about man and Jesus' relationship to man. So how would you title that? What does he do for a man in chapter 2? You, Carol mentioned it about salvation, right? And there's a couple of statements in there that, that how he, he comes to do what for them? He makes propitiation. What else? He, he, okay. Very good. Okay, so what we see is what he's doing for man, and, that, and it is showing his superiority. In other words, what is it that man can't do for himself? And so he, he needs help, doesn't he? And he actually makes a contrast statement in this particular chapter uh, with what he just said in chapter 1, how he was superior to angels, and yet what does he not do for angels but that he does do for man? Ah, so he is coming to the aid of man and to the help of man by being the savior for man. And he did all this by taking on flesh. So although he was made like man in flesh, he is not equal to man, is he? He is better than. So here we see a statement that could be he, that he is made flesh or made, you could say made man as man. I think it would be better, made as man. Um, to do what? To give help to man. Or to save man. You could say it that way too. I used chapter uh, 2 verse 16 as my focus. But Jesus suffered death for man's salvation. Say that in, in 9 and 10. So that's another way you could say it. However you title this, what you want to understand is what's going on in chapter 2. Who is Jesus? How is he better? Better than what, and why, and maybe even the why could be touched on. And in this case, it's to give help to man. He's made flesh. He was made flesh to give help to man. He was made as man is to give help to man. That did not bring him down to man's level or make him equal with man. He is still better than. He is still superior to. Okay. All right. In 2.17, therefore, I always like that, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Um, you could start with the first part, but you don't want to go into... Oh, sorry. I missed it. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's an excellent one. To make propitiation for the sins of people. That would be an excellent one. I like it. I would not get off on the tension of the high priest yet because we are going to get to a segment where that is major. Right now, it is, it's very interesting, though, that how it is brought up. It's mentioned, but is that the emphasis in chapter 2 about him being a high priest? No, so do not make it a major subject when it is not. It is mentioned, but it's mentioned in passing. What he's establishing in chapter 2 is that, that he is superior to man, and it's explaining why. Okay, all right, chapter 3. It's a lot easier one because there's a better than statement, huh? 
Greater than Moses. Now, why is that significant in this book? Because of the law. And how did the, how did the Jewish people view and, uh, you know, how, how do they think about Moses? He's up here on a pedestal, isn't he? And so they, because of their great reverence for Moses, what does this author do with Jesus positionally? He exalts him over Moses. Now, there's a comparison in there. There's a contrast that's going to go on. What, how did, what does he say that Moses is versus what Jesus is in that chapter? Right. So Moses is a servant, but Jesus is a son. So there's your contrast, servant versus son. Okay? And they each were faithful over their house, but which one is greater, the servant or the son? The son. Okay. So in chapter 3, we see then he, Jesus, he is more worthy of glory than Moses. Showing that he, there's a superiority there, right? Um, if you wanted to, you could just say better than angels, better than man, better than Moses. That would be sufficient for titles because it would let you know what's in each of the chapters and it would make it super uh, crystallized. You could do that. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Better than angels, better than man, better than Moses. Now, what's really interesting about that is this kind of sets the stage then for this book. But then what happens in chapter 4? Pardon? It's about, all of a sudden it starts on a subject pertaining to what Jesus has done, correct? That as the one who is better than each of these three, now what we see is he, he is the rest now, this is very interesting in this flow of thought because he starts with Moses just before that, which set, gets the mindset of the people into who they are as a people group, what they came out of as a people group, and it, and it, and it introduces to them the concept of the subject of rest, which we're going to develop more, but it helps these people then to say, this is what God promised us through Moses, who, by the way, we exalt so highly. And so you exalt him so highly, but guess what? Jesus is greater than Moses, and through Jesus, you actually enter into rest. And then how does he, in chapter uh, 4, explain what happened with, with those during the days of Moses? Did they enter rest? No. And he goes on to explain why they didn't, right? All right, so we'll get into that later. But for right now, how would you title then chapter 4? Okay, that we, okay, concerning Jesus, who is Jesus to us concerning our subject of rest? He is, he is the high priest in, in chapter 4, but is that your major subject in chapter 4? It's entering the rest, so you got to try not to land on the priesthood yet. We're going to get there. But, you know, this is, again, look at your, step back, look at your observation worksheet. What's the major subject? Rest. And concerning Jesus, Jesus is better. He's better than what rest? Did, did Moses offer a rest to the people of God? 
did they ever actually enter into it, even though they were, they were offered it? No. And so it's a comparison between the rest that was offered through Moses, which they never actually attained to. Many of them never even entered into the land. They died in the wilderness because of unbelief and disobedience. But, he, but in contrast in chapter 4, then he tells us, but Jesus, who is better than Moses, who is he for us concerning rest? He is our rest, right? He, it, go to verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So we see, we see that. And who is that Sabbath rest? Jesus. So we can say on here then Jesus... There you go. Okay, so one and nine would be good verses. You could actually even combine the two together if you wanted to. And that is exactly what I did, our promised Sabbath rest. Because the, whole, the book on the whole is talking about what was promised through Moses, but Jesus is better than what, what was promised. He is the reality. He is the fulfillment of it. Okay? And when, what's going to be fun about this is when, you, when we're done with this today, you will be able to go home then and chew on what we've talked about, how we've kind of clarified certain things for you, and you can rewrite these titles to suit yourself. Find your own verses that you think crystallize it, but stay focused upon your major words. We know our keyword in four is rest. Our keyword in three was Moses. Our keyword in two is man. Our keyword in one is angels. Are you following it? Okay. So use your key word for that chapter and try to find a, a, a statement that shows how Jesus is superior to or better than, right? Is your other word? So you can say, how is Jesus better than, and then look at your major subjects as you're going through and try to come up with a title for it. All right, chapter 5. Okay, Carrie, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, the high priest. Yeah, this is good. Chapter 5, now we have our major subject of the high priest. And you can see that very clearly. As you see, it's marked over and over. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both sacrifices and gifts for sin. And then he goes on and he says, but no one takes that honor to himself, but rather, how do they get it? They're designated by God to be that. Then what are the scripture quotes? Yeah, okay, verse 10. What is, and, and what, who is it that's saying this, vote, this particular verse? What does it say in verse 10? How did Jesus become the superior high priest? Because God designated it to him so he spends the whole first half of the chapter talking about how you get to be a high priest in the order of the levitical law and then he says but how did jesus become that high priest because in the same way they were designated by this levitical order that had been instituted now jesus also has been designated and it was really neat as later he's going to start saying and jesus and god said this about him and god said this about him and god said this about him it's going to show you all the places where god actually did designate him to be high priest forever. Um, 
So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but God said to Christ, now the quote in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and just, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever. So he actually quotes the scriptures and says he is the son and he has been appointed to be the priest. And God is the one that designated it, so he makes that conclusion. So tell me how you want to title this then. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. There you go. Okay, I'm going to try to get as many of these words in as you guys have just said to me, but I'm not going to get Melchizedek in there right now. Sorry. Okay, so a designated high priest by God forever. So high priest is your key word in that chapter. Right? Very good. You're, you're doing good. Okay, six. This one's a little bit trickier, but in the very first verse, he brings up a title for Jesus, the high priest, that's real significant to this chapter. What does he call him? The Christ. And, in, and then as he goes through this, in verse 6, he says about the Christ, what has happened? What has happened to him? What's the implication that it has happened to him? It doesn't say they do it, but he says that, what about him? What has happened to, to the Christ? Um, then he talks about if they've tasted of the word of God, but then they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since what are they doing to the Christ over and over again? Crucifying him again. So this Christ has been crucified, correct? Okay, and how is that a better than co concept in this particular chapter? What is the, the contrast when he opens the uh, chapter 6 up? What does he tell them he wants them to leave behind and, and move forward to? Elementary. elementary teachings. What are elementary teachings in the minds of Jews? Okay, and it kind of lists a few things. What are those things pertaining to? sacrifices and the temple services, right? The washing of hands and so forth. Okay, so he's saying then, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is crucified, is better than the promise of him, right? The, what, what you had in the elementary teachings. You Jews, leave those elementary teachings, which are in your temple services, and press into Jesus, who, who is now crucified, right? The crucified Christ, because he's better than those elementary teachings. The finished work of Christ is better than the elementary teachings of Christ. In the elementary teachings of Christ, you got a demonstration through the slaughtering of a lamb on the altar. In Christ, you got Christ crucified. In the new, you've got Christ crucified. He's better than. And the, the next chapter, he's going to go and explain how that crucified Christ is better, correct? All right, so we see in here the, um,
Um, I, you don't have to have this second part on here. I'm just going to put it on here for the sake of your going home and looking at better than elementary teachings. Okay, the Christ crucified is better than those elementary teachings. Okay, and he says to us that that, cruci that crucified Christ in verse twenty. What has he done for us? He was a forerunner for us, and where has he entered? Within the veil, and what is the veil? Which is his flesh. Again, the crucified Christ is pictured for you there in the fact that it is through his flesh. That was in 20. Um, I, you could say verse 1. 6, 1 would work. You could also even do uh, 20 where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. But you're back to that Melchizedek thing in the high priest, it's a little. But the forerunner, he has entered within the veil. Um, what does it say about his flesh, which is his flesh? Um, uh, I, must have, I must have dreamed it. <laughs> yeah, I know. After how many times have we been through this this week? You, it, it won't be long though, and we will have this pretty well memorized. Um, maybe I maybe I'm in a different book in my head. Okay, okay. But he is entered as a forerunner for us within the veil. He enters within the veil as a forerunner for us. Okay. All right. It was a little bit trickier one, but he opens the verse that, of that particular chapter with uh, the elementary teachings about the Christ. And so what you can tell by that opening statement even is that then he is going to compare him to what was the fulfillment of it that's better is Christ that's crucified, right, than what they were getting in their elementary part, in their elementary teachings. Okay, chapter 7. Major subject there. What do you see? A high priest again, right? And Carol, this one actually goes into the emphasis on how long the duration of that high priest's work. That part, that quality of forever actually becomes major in this particular chapter, doesn't it? Even though forever can be a time reference, but in this particular chapter, forever in chapter 7 has to do with his priesthood that makes it better than what they had before, right? Did everybody see that when they did chapter 7? That he's, he's, he is a better high priest, and why? That's right. Right. Yes. And that is exactly what we're going to do next week when we go through and do our homework. We're going to be looking for contrasts and comparisons in each of the chapters. It's a very laborious kind of a step that you're going to have to take and do. But it's really fruitful in helping to clarify some things and what's going to happen. What you're going to be doing on your homework next week, I think it's on days one and two, you're going to finish up overview work. And then on day three, four, and five, you're going to start diving into just chapter one. Okay? So we have a couple of days next week where you're going to finish this up. What you're going to do on those first couple of days also is going to be looking for segment divisions. So that's why I've been kind of trying to give you some little hints about things to consider for segment divisions as 
we've been talking. Okay, uh, chapter 7, he's a better high priest forever. Do you have a verse that you'd like to? Priest, you are weak, a word of all. He made, he's made, per- that's a good one. He appoints a son made perfect forever. I like that one. Okay, so like there's a whole bunch to choose from. 17, 24, 28, okay, even 11, I think, was another one. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical law for the basis of, of people who received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So, although it is not mentioned in there, it actually shows you what before was imperfect and what now is better. So he kind of makes a statement there in verse 11 about that. Subtle, but it's there. Okay? All right. So a, a better high priest forever. In 8. Covenant becomes a... Now, seven in chapter 7, you did have covenant come up in 22... And it's alluded to in 28 where it talks about the word of the oath, right? That covenant. But eight, you see covenant, 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 right? All over the place. Um, And you actually see it um, in chapter 9 as well. But then there's another thing that comes up in 9 that kind of supersedes it. So let's look in 8. What do you see in 8 about a title? How would you take that information? There you go. Mediator of a better covenant. Sure. Um, actually not. He was doing the opposite, I think. He, hold on to all your thoughts about it. When we dig into that book, you're, things are going to be made much clearer for you in understanding about what Melchizedek's mess, what the message about Melchizedek. He's using Melchizedek as an example to teach them something about Jesus, which qualifies him. And what he does is he uses the experience of the history of the Jews, what happened to Abraham concerning Melchizedek. We'll get into it. It's, it's kind of a complicated web, but we'll get it unwound for you later. Okay, uh-huh. All right, mediator of a better covenant in 8. Now in chapter 9, what do you see seems to be an emphasis in that particular book? Tabernacle, the sanctuary, right? So he talks about the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and, he said, and concerning that, what? Yeah, in... It makes a contrast between the one on the earth and the one in the heaven, correct? And concerning it, what does he say about the one in heaven? It's better. (laughs) I like in 24 where he says it's just a mere copy. The one on earth is just a mere copy. So much better is the one who, where you enter before God himself into the presence of God, right? So you can say, again, we're going to look at that tabernacle as being that key word, and so we're going to say entered. Yeah. 
into true, the true tabernacle. Again, here's a, a case where you could say he just, he entered into a better tabernacle. You could say that. It's just a better than the old tabernacle, right? This is the chapter that also has that sub uh, key word of blood. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Because it begins to introduce the subject of sacrifice, but then 10, it, it, it actually accentuates it. It brings it actually as the major one, right, in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see the word sacrifice, 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 which relates to the blood, correct? Okay. And concerning the blood, what is the blood being mentioned for in chapter 9? What is happening with that blood? Where is it being taken? into the true tabernacle rather than the earthly tabernacle. And the comparison there is the blood that they brought into their tabernacle is one kind. The blood Jesus brought into the true tabernacle is, is his own. And so there's the contrast. But the emphasis is still on which tabernacle he entered into. That's the comparison, okay? So the tabernacle, the true tabernacle, is the major subject in chapter 9. And then in 10, then we move into the major subject of what? Sacrifice. And in this, how do you, how do you see him show us? <clears throat> I love verse 20. Even though it doesn't say better than, <clears throat> and it doesn't say the word sacrifice, but I kind of marked it in a special way so I would, ca would catch my eye. Because when you're looking at a comparison between the old and the new, what is he saying about this new thing in in chapter 10 verse 20 that's it it's a new and living way to God which is different than the old way right which was all encompassed about death the death of an animal as a substitute for your sin in this case, we now have a new and living way to God. Okay, so chapter 10, major subject, sacrifice. So we're going to say a better sacrifice. And do you have any verses? Mm-hmm. Once for all. Very good. Or, and how about 14, too? It almost concludes what you just said. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So there's a, per, that, actually that word perfected means he made it better, right? So that one would also work. So there's a variety of in there uh, that you can pick from. Um, did you say 11 or 12? 11, 12. I like 14 a lot. Um, any of those. I even like 20, even though it isn't quite stated in the same way the implication is there. Once you study it out, you're going to know that that new and living way is his sacrifice. And so then it would actually be more declarative. Okay. And in verse 38, it's really interesting. In 1038, what does he say to them? So what are we not going to do concerning our sacrifices? Shrink back to what they were doing before, right? 
No shrinking back to the old system, the old way, the old sacrifice is not sufficient. Okay. Ooh, we're getting close. Eleven. We're almost there. Okay, good. It is all about faith. And there's a concluding verse in 40. What does it say? <laughs> there's a better than statement. I love it. And he says, for us, there's something better. They, by faith, were believing what about what about Christ? That he was coming. But why is it better for us? Because he's come. It's done. So it's a better than statement. So by faith, something better provided. Because faith is your key word. I know. It's going to be a fun one to go through. So he is provided, and it's a, so it's a conclusion. That's an 1140. Whoops, that looks like a 6, and I didn't mean it to. That's a 0. He is provided. Because he says, by, by faith, something better has been provided for us. And that's also a complicated verse there we'll have to work on when we get there. In about six months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And 12? Twelve is a very interesting one. Um, it talks about things like discipline and good works and lots of doing things and lots of endurance, right? Has, it seems like, yeah, in, in verse 14, he tells them that concerning that, he gives almost a conclusion statement without making a therefore there. And what? Sanctification. Sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So it seems like he, in that particular chapter, he, makes, he, he goes from talking about by faith we have something better provided for us, which is Jesus who is come, and, and then, then he says about about that faith, what must you do with it? How must it be dealt with? How must, how must, how must it be lived out? There has to be some, some kind of bearing of fruit. What does he say in verse 2 about it, about what Jesus does for us and makes him better than? He is the perfecter of our faith. So there's the better than kind of a statement, right? So you could say in that one, then the perfecter, that Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. Because the major subject in there is, has to do with sanctification and all the things that you do in the process of sanctification. And so there's a lot of things in there that almost look like none of them are connected, but they are. They're all connected under one subject, and that is the perfecting of your faith, which is called sanctification. Okay? Uh, the perfecter of your faith. That's in 12.2. Okay, one more, 13, and we're all done. Again, we have a better than statement. Do, can you find it? Oh. Well, no, we don't have a better than statement. I, I told a little tiny white lie. I didn't mean to. I know, get me. Um, 
there's a comparison in this particular chapter that shows us that something is better than something else. What, what is the thing that he compares here? Drop down to 10, verse 10. What do you see him comparing? Altar. An altar that they're worshiping at, right? Yeah. They have an altar that they go worship at. And what do they do when they go to their altar and worship? Their sacrifices, right? What are we being told concerning sacrifices for what we're in now? Is It's not going to be sacrifices, but what is it going to be? Service. That, that's exactly right. When you go back into... Um, Go back to 1228, which is the closing of the previous chapter, and it kind of gives us a lead in here. In 1228, it says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So when you get into 13 then, their sacrifices at their altar have to do with the works that they did at the temple. But for you and I, we worship at an altar... And, and he says they don't even have the right to eat at it, right? And our altar, what do we put on our altar? How do we put something on an altar before God? By acts of what? Service. By acceptable acts of service. Which, by the way, he has given us a litany of let us statements in this book, but particularly in chapter 12 and 13, let us, let us, let us, let us. This is the altar, that we are serving at is this altar where we give unto him a sacrifice of service which is acceptable with reverence and awe and it and it is um better than their altar so we have another better than statement don't we a better altar and how is this altar actually described is there another declarative word how about in um, let's see, what does it say in 10? Let me see if I can find it. There's a lot of them in here. I mean, there's, um, it's, it's a little tougher to... I really think we probably have to stick with 10 where it makes the comparison between the two altars. This altar, though, you know, for them, theirs is an altar of work, but ours is an altar of grace. That's what I wanted you to catch. Verse 9, do you see it in verse 9? It's we, your heart is going to be strengthened by grace, not by food. So see, do you see the contrast statement? There's another contrast you're going to have to note this week when you do your homework. So not by grace, it's by grace, but not by foods. It's our altar versus their altar. Their altar is acts of killing an animal. Ours is acts of service by grace. The grace is poured out upon us then to exercise or to do those things. In other words, you are not uh, doing acts of service to attain your salvation. Your salvation has come through grace, and then by grace, you give acts of service upon that altar to the Lord. And we'll get to clarify that a lot more and develop it better later. But So we're going to put a better altar of grace. Theirs is not grace. It's, at, it's works, right? All right, 1310. 
is the verse I picked, but you can pick another one if you like it better. Woo-hoo. Okay, we just barely did it. We were like five minutes over. I knew we were going to be tight, but we did really, really good today, you guys. Yes. I just want to say one thing back in 12. Uh huh. Verses 28 and 29. This gives a wonderful.